Welcome everyone to the live episode of the Change Starts Here podcast. Today's topic is executing through change. And our guest today is someone I've had the privilege to work with very closely for about 10 years. Um, she's someone that I personally look up to, not just because we work close together, but because I see how she lives and leads every day. Um, she's someone that uh, has extensive background when it comes to organizational change and uh, change leadership. Um, she's the executive vice president for Franklin Covey Education and co-author of the Four Disciplines of Execution book uh, with nothing else, Meg. I'm trying to think of what Darren said our difference in bios. Like I could go on and on about the things that I, uh, your background and what makes you a perfect fit for this discussion on executing through change. But uh, I'll just stop and just say welcome. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here with you, Dustin. It ought to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, well know, our first question we ask everybody is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Yeah, surprisingly, deceivingly interesting questions, right? So who am I? I'm um, a wife, a mother, a leader, uh, a grandmother, uh, an artist. Uh, I'm a lot of different things. And um, what do I love about what I do? I think if I had to just narrow in on what I really love is I love seeing growth and change in humans and organizations by an extension of that. And so watching someone that I work with develop over multiple years and turn into, you know, a tremendous leader to watch people learn and apply that learning to watch uh, clients improve and and see that they're improving. Like there's a confidence that's kind of palpable when someone is making progress. Um, that's that's really what I love about what I do. So you know, I think so right now you are a senior leader in a, a, a definitely a rapidly growing organization. Um, I guess my first question is, how did you get here? Uh, you, you're definitely someone who plans and has ambitions, but uh, was this a part of the step that you saw coming along the way? Oh, so not part of the plan. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I go back to my early career um, with my intent to be a clinical psychologist. Um, and I started in the field of child abuse prevention, which turned out to be uh, more difficult and not not really the best place for me. Um, I transitioned then into organizational development and so industrial psych org development and then spent uh, a while on the corporate side working in uh, oil, pharmaceutical uh, semiconductor industries. And I joined Franklin Covey uh, 21 years ago on our enterprise side as a coach consultant, um, really specifically to work in the pharmaceutical industry. At that time, we, we had a vertical and they wanted someone with pharma background. And so that's how I entered Franklin Covey and spent 10 years uh, working with large Fortune 500 companies, including most of the big pharma, and um, 
it was there that I got involved with the development of the four disciplines process that was, you know, born in that time period. And 11 years ago, was asked if I wanted to join the education uh, division. And um, I said, no. <laughs> I was like, no, I just, I don't think I'm a great fit. What do I know about education? Um, and, you know, so it's easy to look back on that and think, what the heck? Um, it was the first time in my career I decided to just do something that wasn't part of my plan. And uh, it is, you know, been one of the best decisions ever. And what really, what, what pushed me over the edge was I had been working with a couple education clients and um, I started thinking about I could help a company, you know, improve their stock by a dollar, or I could help a district improve the outcomes of thousands of students. And so how do I want to apply, uh, you know, what, what value I have in an organizational way? And so that ultimately is what swayed me to come to education. And I never dreamt that I'd be in the role I'm in now either. Um, I would, yeah, it's it's been a crazy ride. Yeah. What... What were some of the keys to, you know, you spent your career on the business side and you come into education. Like I know that I know you well enough to know that you had some confidence about things that you could bring, but I also know you know well enough to know that you're humble on the things you don't know. What what were the keys to getting up to speed quickly? Because I feel like any leader who's taking over a new challenge, that's got to be one of the keys to be the best leader possible. Is how do you speed up that learning curve so that you can be effective as soon as possible? Hmm. It's a great question. I mean, it's funny because I think looking back, and I'm not sure I recognized it at the time, um, as a consultant, you have, uh, you know, in the course of the year, you know, a lot of clients that you work with, some you know, and that relationship develops over time. But invariably, you're called in to work with a client that you honestly have no knowledge of what they do. And so my practice had always been, to do my homework. So before I would show up at a client that was very new to me, um, I would do research on who they were, what their products were, what was their financial situation. Some, you know, a lot of times um, challenges on the balance sheet or what drive, you know, a need for a consultant to come in. Um, what's, what's their place in the competitive landscape of the industry they're in, what's the state of the industry that they're in. Like I would, I would just do everything I could to get a grip on the, you know, the business of the client that I was about to serve. And so for me, I just attacked it the exact same way. I was like, okay, education is my new client. What do I need to know? And so uh, not only did it include visiting client districts, talking to district leaders, uh, but literally reading everything I could get my hands on uh, from research to periodicals to thought leader books, you know, so that I could try and get my arms around the state of education. I mean, I had I had a perspective on it, right? I was a student once. I had kids that went to school. Like I, I had like that level of consumer experience. Um, but this just challenged me to dig a lot deeper. Well, I know it was a, a big jump and a risk for you at the time. And so I, I've asked uh, a few folks who have had the privilege of working really close with you for about those 11 years of uh, what 
what makes your leadership unique? And I, I solidified it down to uh, two things. That's probably oversimplifying it, but uh, they all agree that you're a compassionate leader who is a change agent. Now, in, in my short time in leadership, I, I generally find those terms to kind of contradict each other. Because I usually find like change agents being folks that just come in, break the house and keep it moving. And it's not they're not compassionate people, but they just keep it moving. And so what role has compassion played before we start talking about you as a change agent? What role has compassion played in your leadership? Hmm. I think that I just, you know, we're all people first, right? And so um, I spent my academic career uh, focused on human behavior. That really was my area of fascination is just what makes us act the way we do? Still a great question. <laughs> and, um, and I think because of that, it, it just makes me look at everybody as a human first. Uh, you know, in organizations, you can look at people um, as a role or, um, you know, the busier you get, maybe the less you look at them at the, at the person level. Um, I just feel like everybody has a story, right? And everybody gets up every day and comes to work and with the intent to do the best they can do. And there's stuff going on in everybody's world constantly. And um, I think it's just important for me to be grounded and understanding that, even if I don't know every story. And I, I think that as we've grown, I've gotten to the point which I'm not wild about. I don't know everybody's story, but I, I just have a deep connection from the perspective that I know that there's stuff going on there. So let's just start there. Um, so I, I think that's where it comes from. So I, I know uh, your great level of humility. So I, it's funny, even though you just want to ask you these questions, but you know, when you get described as a change agent, what does that mean to you? And do, would you agree that you would be an agent of change? Like, I know that's a weird question to ask. So try lightly as you want to. Yeah, it is. Um, it's, it's first, I'm like still kind of digesting. So people describe me as a change agent. Are you sure they didn't say troublemaker? <laughs> Just <laughs> part of the editorial of one of them, but I look at that as a positive, as you know, so not in a bad way. It was like a joke, but yes, uh, yeah. change agent. we'll go with uh, Yeah, I think um, that I really think my, um, I am a creative person, like my path not taken even prior to the clinical psych, I was accepted to art school and chose not to, not to take that path. And so I just have a strong connection to innovation and creativity, no matter what, like no matter what environment I'm in, like I'm the person that looks at weird things on a hike and notices, you know, odd shapes of trees. And like, I am just very open to the fact that there is um, opportunity around us to see things differently. I think there's, you know, five ways to solve every problem. I'm, I guess I am the quintessential not black and white thinker. <laughs> I live in the gray. I really do believe that there's just a lot of ways to skin a cat. And so I'm curious uh, to see how, what people are seeing and how they would solve things. And I think fundamentally 
that's the engine that drives innovation um, is the curiosity to consider different things. And so I don't know that I would have described myself as a change agent, although I, I definitely get my, myself involved in a lot of things. So I guess that could be fair. Well, I think in this case, I, I try to oversimplify it, but the, the way we've seen it is a curiosity to learn what we're doing and why, right? So you just talked about, here's some components of what I think are a change agent or what I've seen and by what you just described. So a natural curiosity to figure out why things work the way they do and if they should change. And if so, what are all the options that we could change those, right? So that, that fits, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah, for sure. hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> uh, change agent is not okay with status quo. And so you're not breaking stuff to break it, but you're constantly thinking, can we do this better? And it probably makes you crazy sometimes because you just, you, it doesn't stop. Even when you think you fixed the problem, you're like, could we do that better? Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very <laughs> accurate. Yeah. So I think that's a change agent. I think for me, like that, that's, it'll, and then the last part, which you joked about was, you know, not necessarily being a troublemaker, but you got to, you, because you're constantly curious and you're not trying to have the right answer. You're just trying to work with the team to get the right answer for growth. Right. So there's not an ego to it. It's like, how do we get to the answer? Not, it's not about me having the answer. Um, and so there is a little bit of troublemaking in that, but it's not out of trying to create problems. It's just trying to get better for everyone. And so those to me, like when I break the change agent description down to those three components seem to be pretty solid for describing what I thought of as a change agent and why I think it's accurate to you. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'll buy it. No, I'll buy it. I think that's, I think that's fair. And I, I also feel like that's what um, I'm compelled to do. Like, I think that's my role is to um, constantly source the best ideas out of the team. Right. So when I was client facing, I would always, you know, remind the client that the people that know your business the best are the ones that are closest to your, your customer and your closest to your product. They're the ones that are in it every day. They know what needs to be fixed. So that means you need to talk to people to understand what they're seeing, what they're thinking. And it doesn't mean everybody's right. I mean, everybody has a perspective. But what I find is over time, the more you talk to people and the more curious you are, there, there's trends that start to appear. There's certain themes that you go, wow, I've heard this now three, four, 10, 20 times. There's something here. And so to me, that's my, my role is to ask the best questions of the people that know the most, which are you know, the, those that are working directly with our clients. So before we dive into some uh, education examples, you know, you have a, a long history of helping organizations change that aren't in the education space. And I think there's probably some lessons we can glean from it. When you think back to your earlier years in your career, when you were focused on, you know, the silo of pharmaceutical, pharmaceuticals or um, the oil and gas industry, do any... Um, big challenges come to mind that you helped or got to be a part of uh, a team trying to solve because life is crazy right now. I'm sure there's gotta be something we can learn from your experience there. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's a few moments I look back on that were, you know, kind of quintessential, but they also, um, 
they pointed out, you know, so I was working at the C-suite level in a Fortune 50, right? So this is a really big company. Um, I was, you know, nauseous, you know, the first time I was going in to sit down with the CEO thinking, oh man, this is this big time, right? Yet what we were talking about was human behavior, culture, um, things that I was comfortable with. And so for me, that's where I get to my comfort zone. If I can stay in my wheelhouse, I'm good. And um, in this situation, one of his divisions was, was really not doing well, um, not doing well compared to the other divisions and just not, not performing the way it needed to. And even as an outsider, not in their industry, that was clear to me. And I just started to ask a series of questions, right? So human kind of questions. So tell me about this leader is where I started. And it became clear in just a couple minutes that he is very, was very close friends with this leader. They had gone to college together. You know, they had known each other their entire professional careers. So now you can see it gets getting hard, right? So you have literally one of your dearest friends leading a division that's not succeeding. We talked a little bit further and I just asked, do you think he knows that the division's not doing well? And he thought about it and he said, of course he knows. I mean, you know, it, they're all, everyone is looking at the same data. And then I said, how do you think he feels about it? And in that moment, he just looked at me and said, I need to talk to him. Um, I checked back in with him probably a month later, and he said that he had a chat with his friend and his friend was relieved that he brought the conversation up and he was looking for a path in the organization that he could contribute because he knew that he wasn't winning in the seat that he was in. And um, he eventually did. They found a great job for him and he was pretty pumped about where he was headed and they were able to replace him and turn that division around. But it, I think what I learned from that personally was just the power of a crucial conversation. And I think feedback is really hard, right? I don't, I don't know one person that says, wow, I can't wait to talk to somebody who's failing in their job. Like, this will be fun, right? And what it reminded me is that most of us know, right? If I'm not doing something well, we know we're not doing something well. And so while it feels like one of the worst conversations you have to have, if you have it, you know, well, it actually is like the best thing ever that you can do for that person. And, um, I mean, that was a pretty, you know, that's a big example, but that particular situation replays itself every day in every organization, no matter where you are, you know, and I think a lot of times we, we avoid for, I mean, for sure, you know, we avoid the difficult conversations. So. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, again, even if you have that paradigm of the very real story that you experience, it still doesn't make it that much easier. Right. Even if you know, I'm going into this, likely going to be really good for that person and everyone long term it still is tough just because you don't want that person to feel like they're a failure they're being 
chastised. You're just trying to find a place for, you know, everyone to be successful. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't make it easy. I, again, to your point, like right now we've mm -hmm. got, uh, leadership challenges everywhere in education and trying to help people through this, uh, you know, one, going back to your, the compassionate side of your leadership is understanding that each person is a human and then taking that to everybody wants to be successful. How do we figure out how to marry those two? Right. Yeah, exactly. So in, in your journey, uh, you were, you kind of were part of the genesis of the four disciplines of execution. Like I know we have the, the book that went to all companies and now we've made an educator version of that, which if anybody's listening has not read it or found a copy yet, you need to get one. It is awesome. Before I ever got to Franklin Covey, I personally used a lot of the principles from four disciplines of execution to help uh, turn around the schools that I was fortunate enough to work with. And so I'm a huge, huge fan. It's an honor to have Meg who's been around here from the, the genesis is there any uh, history you can kind of give us of like how the 4DX got here? And for the folks who don't know what four disciplines of execution is, just basic high level overview before we dive in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think there's any, you know, particularly, uh, you know, fascinating stories. I think um, when the four disciplines first started, we actually called it something else. We called it aligning goals for results because, well, that's what it was at that point in time. And it was really through, a team of consultants working with organizations and then working with our own inter internal product development team that cultivated it into what we now recognize as the four disciplines. And the four disciplines um, really are such four simple steps. I mean, we say they say easy and do hard, right? Because they, they sound so obvious. <laughs> um, this idea of really identifying what your wildly important goals are, right? If you don't identify one to three, really one to two important goals that you're going to target, um, you're, you're not going to get anywhere, right? You're just going to flounder. And it's not just you as a person, although I do think um, the four disciplines, one of the things I love about them is that you can use it as a person, you can use it on a small team, and you can use it in your entire organization. And at the organizational level where I had predominantly been working with the content, <clears throat> the most important thing that came away from identifying your wildly important goals wasn't the identification part, even though that could take some time to work through. It's because you identify them, you can communicate them. And the larger your organization or the more geographically spread out you are, the more critical it is that you are able to communicate clearly to everybody in your organization what the target is. Because in lieu of being given a target, people will make their own. They'll do their best, right? They'll make their own. And so um, that identification piece is most important because it's related to communication. Um, the, the second is, you know, this idea of, you know, knowing what your leads and lives are. Um, when we talk about goals, we almost always think about goals in terms of the endpoint, um, the lag, if you will. So uh, the goal is to lose 10 pounds. So to go from X to Y. Well, that's great. <laughs> but the leads are where things actually happen. Um, what are you going to do? Are you going to exercise more? Are you going to eat less? Like what's the activity, the measurable activity that you can track day to day to day? 
your lead measures. Um, in some organization, leads are super obvious. And in many organizations, it, this is an awakening in and of itself, not understand, you know, not really knowing what drives the result. And so a lot of learning can come from that. The third discipline is about scoreboarding. Um, so most organizations I've worked, they have tremendous data tracking. It lives in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. <laughs> I, I remember being in an organization and I asked about their dashboards and they're like, we've got dashboards. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's great. Show me your dashboards. They pulled out this big old folder of spreadsheets and I was like, oh dear, you know, that that's not, I mean, you may build a dashboard off of your spreadsheets, but the dashboard is just that visible sign that shows if you're winning or losing. Um, it's easy to read. It's something that everybody can see. Um, and it's, it is an important part because it's part two of communication, right? So part one is saying this is where we're trying to go. Part two of communication is saying this is where we are. If you do one without the other, you're not really headed the right way. And then the fourth dis discipline is about creating a cadence of accountability. Um, it is my personal favorite. I think it is the single most important of all of the disciplines. And um, I, I don't think it's as sexy as the rest maybe, <laughs> but the idea that you have a regular accounting of where you are, you meet in your functional team, and these can be 10 minute stand-up meetings. They don't have to be droning on kind of sessions. But the ability just to account, this is what I've done, this is what I said I would do, and this is what I'm going to do. It is that discipline itself that really drives the results. Because we've all been part of organizations where goals were set, metrics were identified, maybe even a dashboard built, and then progress went, you know, <laughs> nowhere fast. <laughs> and it's because people get busy. And so... The other components that I think Discipline 4 bring to the table are that it keeps you um, focused on refinement, right? So we talked about always getting better and looking for you know, ways to innovate. Well, it is entirely possible that you could pick um, a wrong lead measure, right? You thought one thing was driving your outcome, but as you really got into it, you discovered something. That was not what was driving it. It was something else. Because you're meeting regularly, you can change your lead measures, right? Like you're not married to these. You just need to make sure that you're getting it right. Um, the other outcome is in organizations, we see it's a powerful way to build trust. Um, when you meet as a team, commit to what you're going to do, actually do it, and repeat that over and over again. It's a tremendous builder of trust in teams and organizations. And so the ability to make sure that you have implemented discipline four correctly and in an ongoing way is a really powerful part of the process. Well, our, our uh, professional relationship started, I think the two of us geeking out over the potential for districts to really use this for transformative change for themselves. What what have you seen or how have you seen districts utilize these disciplines to get really cool results or create change in their in their district? Yeah, I think we are still um, we're still kind of on the forefront of seeing like 
you know, what I would say would be a massive organizational implementation. We have had several districts implement four disciplines and get some cool outcomes, right? Um, and there's the outcomes aren't all just academic and um, and cultural. Uh, one of the first assignments I was asked um, in education was to work with a district that was uh, struggling. Um, it was actually at that point under federal control. And when I spent time with the superintendent, it, it just became really clear to me why. Um, in this case, he was an incredible guy. And I also think that he probably was not thoroughly supported in that role of superintendent. He had ascended to the role and pro you know, was probably the best guy um, in the district to take the role, but everybody has different areas of expertise, right? And so when you get to the level of superintendent, now you're a generalist. And so maybe you haven't had exposure to budgets and financing, right? But you know a lot about academics or, it can be any version and any combination of those. And um, I think by working through the four disciplines and, and helping him understand the role that they played in his district, he was able to restructure at the central office to make sure that the right teams were aligned together. It sounds simple enough, but I find most organizational structures are accidental. You know, you have a organizational structure and then you're like, oh, we need a position for X, bring that person on. Who will they report to? Uh, I don't know, this person's got time, so let's assign them here. Well, we five, 10, 20 years down the pike, you've got an organizational structure that actually doesn't make any sense. So you need to kind of step back and look at that, realign, make sure that you've identified what your wigs are, and in that case, you know, what I saw was a leader who was feeling like they weren't winning. And after working with them for a number of years um, in a consulting relationship, um, seeing them really take control and feeling like, you know what, I got this and I know what I'm doing. And that superintendent actually called me on his last day when he retired and I this had been now probably five years after I had stopped working with them. And I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm just doing my job and I care about it. And in this case, he was a great guy. Um, but I, you know, to make it, to make it, um, to see a, such a difference made that on the last day of their, you know, 30 plus year career, they're, one of the things they're reflecting on was, you know, the work and the impact, really, of the four disciplines. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. I, so, again, so I see it helping the adults, right, become better leaders for themselves. Uh, you shared with me, it's probably been a couple of years now, um, a cool story, and I didn't prepare you for this by any means, but a cool story about how when a district is aligned to the four disciplines, how it can impact uh, from the board all the way down to students and families. Can you give us an example that where you've seen that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that is um, that is still kind of um, my my ultimate in the four disciplines world is I want to have um, a third grader, you know, present four disciplines to the board. 
And we actually have third graders that could do it. I'm, I'm confident of that. But when you think about alignment, and it's true in any organization, and I see it for sure um, in education, even just from the board to the superintendent level, and then, you know, throughout each building within the district, being able to be crystal clear about what the goals are and what are we trying to achieve. There's a lot of things to solve in any district. And so can we narrow our focus and really target what it is we're after? Um, and once we've done that, again, like I had shared, it is about communication. Um, if you think of your organization like a triangle, um, we generally spend a ton of time at the top of the organization. So at the board, the super, the central office level, talking about gaps, talking about what we need to do differently, do better. And the, the there's just a ton of conversation up here. By the time that conversation is translated, down to think teacher level, they're only hearing bits and pieces of it. And so the ability to make sure at a district level, we have identified and aligned the critical few that we're targeting and then communicating it down, you know, through that triangle, because here's, here's like the rub in this triangle, where do you think the work actually gets done in the school district? I'm not saying there isn't work going on, you know, up here, but I'm saying like the work of educating students is down here. And so if we're not connecting those dots, and so if you even take, take it to that next level, which is what we do certainly with Leader and Me is teaching students how to use the four disciplines to achieve their own goals, so be they personal and academic, um, you know, in districts that say, well, our district-wide goal is to improve reading um, at grade level, and we state that at the district level, we move that down to the school level, from the school level, we push it down into grade level teams, and within those grade levels, each student has their own goal. I was given a tour um, in a school, a third grader, which is my preferred age group, because I find them to be knowledgeable enough and they haven't quite adapted a filter to know what not to say. <laughs> so they're generally very amusing. And um, this little third grader took me in his classroom and he pointed out to the scoreboards and he's like, so do you know what they are? And so I said, no, he goes, I mean, very exasperated. He goes, well, let me explain. Our goal in our school is to improve our reading. And he's talking slower to me, which I really appreciated. I just thought it was funny that he was like, okay, let me explain to this dummy what the heck we're doing here. He explained, he got out his leadership notebook and he showed me what he was trying to achieve. He showed me how his goal connected to his grade level goal. And then he took me outside the classroom. He said, you know, that was my class, but here's my all the grade level. And then he goes, let's let's go to the lobby. And he said, and here are all the scores for our entire building. And then he points to a blank spot on the bulletin board. And he said, you know what this is? <laughs> By now he knows I'm an idiot. So I just let him go. And he said, this is where we're waiting for our testing to come back that's when we're going to know if we hit our goal. And I thought, this is it. This is it right here that, you know, we can get to the point that every student understands 
not only their personal goal, but how their personal goal fits in to the entire ecosystem of, uh, you know, what we're trying to do as a school and a district. So um, I think we are still, you know, the book came out that, you know, we've talked about for a while, taking the 4D book and having an education version. And so that's been out since July. And so I think it's going to be a fun year as we see the light bulbs go on and uh, we begin to partner more deeply with districts. I agree. Uh, you and I in our, our other roles, we get a chance to talk to district leaders quite often that no matter what state, it's all across the country that you and I are going to talk to folks um, or North America. Uh, it, it seems right now almost every district even though we're technically out of like the crazier times of the pandemic, we're still in it and it still feels very real. Almost every district seems to be struggling with teacher and staff wellness and potential turnover. Um, I've got two thoughts on that. Cause I know that you've, you've got a passion also for helping people with wellness when it just comes specifically to the four disciplines of execution. Let's say you were the consultant consulting me as a superintendent around. These are my big issues right now. What questions would you be wanting to ask me to help me kind of put this together or start framing using the 4DX to help me solve this problem? Hmm. That's a tough one, Dustin, because I think the interesting component of four disciplines is we typically apply it to uh, very concrete things, right? So grades, uh, revenue, um, behavior, right? Think of whatever you might apply that to. And what you're describing and what I'm observing as well is what our schools and districts are going through is it's not concrete. I mean, it's real, don't get me wrong, but it is not concrete. It's not like, oh, could you just fix this one thing and everything will be better? You know, we have such teacher shortages that our teachers are covering larger classes and more of them than what they ever have. Um, and then, you know, we're taking away planning time because we, we need them in the classroom, right? Like this just rolls on and on and on. And so it, it doesn't feel to me, and I'd have to give that some more thought, um, that it's, it's, it's not a stereotypical four discipline solution, unless what we're doing is we step back and say, okay, what we really need to do is to provide oxygen. And so in our district, we're going to identify three things that we believe are going to provide oxygen to our staff. And then you have to identify what they are, right? Is it planning time? Is it class size? Is it, um, is it support, right? And so we're, we're seeing a lot of interest just in the area of wellness and mindfulness and not like here's your two hour session and, you know, good luck with that. Like we, we did our time, but you know, what is our ongoing commitment to provide some type of an outlet in that? So as a district, I mean, that, that would be how you would apply the four disciplines in this area is really to find on this particular issue, what's the best way to provide some breathing room and respite for your teams. And then to, identify your lead behaviors and measure them and make sure that you are actually getting it done. Um, and yeah, I agree. I mean, we are definitely seeing this. Um, it's really globally. Um, and we're, you know, it's a tough spot. And it's not just the, 
It just says turnover at the teacher and principal level. I've never seen so many superintendent retirements and even at the state level, superintendents. So like this is this is kind of a quintessential moment in education. I, I appreciate your honesty in that answer because I you know things that we talk about all the time are how real change requires a process, not necessarily a program. It's not like a checkbox you can go through or one size fits all. And so the honesty of your response of, hey, it may, may or may not work, or you have to apply it in a very specific way is refreshing because anybody who's tried to lead a district or a school knows there's so much complexity and so much uh, personal context that has to be factored in. Uh, it would feel inauthentic for you to say, oh, just take step one, two, three, and four, and everything's solved, right? <laughs> so I appreciate the, the honesty about the four disciplines. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is, it's not easy what's going on. Easy, easy is not a word I would choose. Uh, before we get to our final questions, um, you know, you've been and even helping superintendents or working with teams, helping superintendents try to solve some of those challenges. Have you been exposed to any cool ideas that you've seen out there that people have tried to do or tr are trying to do to help solve, you know, turnover or wellness, staff and teacher wellness? Um, I'm just curious, you'd exposed to a lot. I didn't know if you've seen anything recently that we could learn from. Well, actually, I, I've been digging deep to try and find what the solutions are looking like because um, it is really kind of a sick feeling to talk to um, a superintendent and realize what they're dealing with. And it's real. And as what teachers as well, I mean, just totally over it. I had a conversation recently and uh, they said that the, the, the frame of the conversation was returning to normal. Ha, what normal, right? Because in the beginning of this year, the thinking was, we're going to get back to normal. That was the language. And everybody got back and they got back to anything but normal. And so this could be the new normal, but whatever it is, we're not really fully prepared to support it in the way that we have to or need to. And so um, what I'm seeing really just across the country um, is districts are really looking at it at a lot of different levels. And so um, the recruitment level is one. So how do we how do we identify and get more teachers into our system as fast as possible? What does that look like? Um, and I think it's causing some states to uh, reconsider their requirements and certifications. And that's been a kind of an ongoing conversation in many, um, many states anyway. But maybe, you know, maybe there's going to be some loosening of restrictions there that allow for um, actually better hiring environments um, for existing teachers. You know, what can... What is there that can be done that can really make sure that they're not so fried, right? Because it's the case in any organization. You lean the heaviest on your best people because they can take it because they're smart, because you depend on them. And in organizations, in districts, that's exactly what is happening. But there's a bandwidth there. And so what is that? what does that support look like? Um, how do we get back to planning time? Um, that at a teacher level, that oxygen just to stop and breathe is is pretty critical. At the principal level, I mean, in most most schools, there is no assistant principal. I mean, that's kind of the state of education in the U.S. anyway. 
Um, and so it's a pretty lonely role. And uh, what I'm hearing at the principal level is simply, I spend all day trying to buoy up my staff and I'm fried at the end of the day in the week. Like there's just nothing left in me. And so a lot, I have seen several states now already drop a few grants and I think we'll see more of them coming directed specifically at what we can do to support principals. Um, and that's at, a, at on a more ongoing level. So uh, whether it's executive coaching that's focused really on wellness and um, balance so that in essence, the, the, the coach can help the principal get through this burden of, of really being the emotional depository for the building, right? So the focus of that, of that coaching is maybe a non-traditional use of that. Um, and even at the superintendent and board level, I think uh, many of them are looking internally to say, okay, how can we lead differently? How can we require differently? Uh, I think the next six months will be really telling as we see um, some of our districts and states really lean into that um, in terms of getting support out. And I, sh I hope we see it, you know, in a widespread way. That's great. Well, we uh, have this, we have a list of three questions that we always end the podcast with that um, we're finding, you know, our best leaders out there are, are readers, are multifaceted, so they have interest in art and music, and generally they're around other great leaders, and so they're being exposed to really cool leadership lessons uh, on a regular basis. And so our last three questions are centered around those. So first, um, I know that you are a consummate reader and consumer of information. How do you consume your information? Uh, what do you read? Who do you listen to on a regular basis? Mm. So I, I like to consume my information in a number of different formats. So I like audiobooks because I can multitask and, uh, you know, I, and you, you know, you can turn up the speed. <laughs> You can really get through a book fast. So I like that component of it. Um, I enjoy podcasts, especially, you know, road tripping kind of things. And like you said, I think I, my first choice is always to pick up a book and read it. I mean, that's that's how I prefer most cases. And sometimes I listen to a book and then I read it, which is really terribly geeky. I have a chat. I have a hard time reading a book without a pen. It's been a habit I've been trying to break. And I just. I just can't do it. And it slows me down in the reading. But by the time I'm done with the book, <laughs> it looks like something, you know, somebody's freshman lit class or something. So like, I really enjoyed um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I mean, it is a very scientific book uh, that really focuses on every bias that exists. Nobel laureate. I mean, just fascinating. Um, and then I think some related you know, books to that were um, the Think Again book for, by Adam Grant that came out. And then that kind of sent me on an Adam Grant binge. So I just read originals and then uh, the give and take. So kind of like doing my Adam Grant wheel through. Um, and I do every now and then allow myself a little bit of fiction, but that's probably not, um, you know, the most common thing. Uh, my question is, all of those sound I mean, like really good, but think, think are in both titles. And so I, I'm sure they're not like light reads or for the thing of heart, but 
again, whatever, we're all recharged by different things. So it's interesting to know that that's, that's something that charges your batteries. For me, it does just because I feel like, uh, you know, probably like leaders, you know, like principals and superintendents are feeling, I feel like if I'm not engaging with new thinking, um, that it's just easy to go stale. And that's where innovation comes from. Not that like the innovation was in the book and hey, wow, but that the innovation can start a conversation with my team that then leads us to innovation. I mean, I think that's really how that works. And um, and I read lots of other things, like I have way too many magazine subscriptions on um, household kind of nonsense. And, you know, I, I, I have, I have my, my, dis, my diversions, I guess. Yeah. So like any leaders, because a question I did not tell you you're going to be receiving, I'm adding a fourth one here, just because I know you so well. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're all super busy right now with the responsibilities that we have in front of us. Um, I think you've got a few different hobbies that I find really interesting. I don't know when you find the time for. Can you share some of those things that you do to help you decompress and get energized? When I when we had Jeffrey Cannon on, who you and I both are big fans of, uh, he talked about uh, Taekwondo being his escape and really spending hours doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to know what are those things in your life? Because you're an artist. I know you like the outdoors. Like what are those things that you find you make time for so that you can be refreshed and constantly be a better leader. Yeah. Well, um, hiking and biking are my go-to outdoor behaviors. And so I really, uh, there's just something for me about getting on my bike. I still feel like that kid that like gets on their bike and goes, Wee! like, I don't know what it is about being on a bike that still makes me feel that way every time I get on it. And so I am in my happy place if I'm, if I'm riding. Um, and I just enjoy creative outlets. And so uh, I used to do a lot of pen and ink. I don't do much of it, but I I have been commissioned by my daughters <laughs> to create a couple of things. And that's actually been a lot of fun. Um, I made a ridiculous trash truck themed birthday cake for my two-year-old grandson. Uh, but, you know, because I wanted to. <laughs> and... I'm I'm pretty much down for any like weird creative you know uh, pursuit. You know my my niece is an artist and she's always dreaming up things that I can get involved with. And um, for me, I just think it's an outlet. It's just it's completely an outlet. So decorating for Christmas, actually, I'm kind of down for that. That's that's a fun thing for me. Flower arranging, I'm definitely going to be the one that shows up with the arrangements for whatever events happening. Making pies uh, at Thanksgiving. Pies at Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's funny, too. I was thinking about that because I'm not really the best baker. Like, I can bake, right? But, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I didn't put baker on the who I am part, right? So, I wouldn't, but I can bake. But it wasn't about the pie, although they did taste fine. It was about the crust. So, it was the top of the crust and braiding it and, you know, cutting out, like, all kinds of shapes and, so that the top of the pie, you know, had a very intricate design. And I was laughing, thinking, I don't know, I'm, I'm like a crust expert. I'm not really experts in big word. But I mean, that's my fascination. It's not really what's in the pie. So I, sh- I probably need to amend my pie. <laughs> no, I just, I mean, the reason why I went down this path is that like, I, you know, have a in-depth view of your schedule. So like, I think 
again, like most senior leaders, you can have, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks and maybe more sometimes. And we all make choices with our free time. It's key. Whatever your choice you make, it's not about, you know, I don't want people thinking, God, well, I don't bake like Meg or I don't, you know, do all the stuff that she's doing. It's just you're intentional. You make time for the things that are giving you energy. Because I used to tease you when I first mm-hmm. met, I think uh, it's probably Molly's wedding that you were doing like those tree, you're holding hosting parties or something. And you showed up like in the midst of a really busy time. I had no idea he had it. You showed up with like the, the little tree serving thing. I don't remember what they're called. I'm going to slaughter it. But I was just so impressed. And I'm thinking, I have no excuse. I got to figure out how to spend more times at my hobbies if this woman is doing what she does and does all the other things. Yeah, I think, you know, you find time for what you love. And so especially, you know, I love my children and a lot of my projects emanate from them saying, hey, do you do you have an extra wreath? <laughs> well, that one I could make one. Or, you know, the our outdoor time is always, you know, it's it's generally spent together. Right. So it's me and Jim or one or more of the girls. And so, um, you know, that's why it, you know, it works. And then the creative stuff, I, you know, it's just, it's what I do. Yeah. Uh, Two more quick questions. Uh, What, if you're in your car driving around, what's on your playlist? (laughs) Okay. So I don't have a playlist. I'm not a playlist, but I do listen to sports radio. And (laughs) I, yeah, I, I generally have sports radio on in my car. That's the most Philly answer I think I've ever heard. I don't really do music because it's banned in Philly because all we can think about is talking about what the Eagles did last week and what they're going to do next week and how they're going to try to avoid getting beat by the Cowboys. Oh, you had to go there. <laughs> Since, yeah. Um, I do listen to music, but in the car in particular, I, I tend to listen to sports radio. You said you have daughters. Do they do that as well? Is that part of like the family upbringing, uh, whether it's Thompson family or being in Philadelphia area? I, they're all, um, you know, pretty up to date on Philly related sports. And I would say two of them, maybe more than, you know, I wouldn't say all of them, but I would say are pretty, uh, they would be able to hold a very strong conversation on especially nfl and nba i would say would be their areas of strength that's awesome well meg last question before we let you go uh you're around great leaders often you're reading all the time or at least consuming information all the time what has been the most significant or most interesting piece of uh change management or leadership advice that you've come across recently that you just can't get out of your head Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what um, what strikes me is just the consistency of what I hear over time. And, uh, you know, the change management curve, you know, if you were to look at Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, you know, really quintessential work there, I think every leader needs to just be immersed in understanding that the world we're in, this is constant. And there's multiple curves layering on top of each other. I think we thought when we went through the pandemic, uh, hey, we're going through this change curve and now we're in the area, you know, the zone of disruption, but we'll be out of it. <laughs> it was kind of a false expectation. 
right? We're, we're through maybe the initial part of that curve, but then the recovery curve landed on top of it. And now we're on, you know, just the burnout curve or the extension curve. And so I think that what I've learned from leaders that I've been exposed to over the years is just making sure that you don't falsely assume that you're there, right? Like just when you think you got there, you're not there again because we're in a very organic environment, never more than what we're living through right now. And um, I think probably the the most tried and true advice that is, I think, 100% accurate is it just all comes down to communication. Because just as a leader, as you feel like I've said that 100 times and you're tired of saying whatever it is, your team just needs it. And, you know, we're kind of back to that triangle because what your message has to get from here down to here and as exhausting as it feels to continually tell people that they're valued and that, you know, you see what they're contributing and they matter, uh, you really can't do it enough. And, um, and that's really what I'm seeing. I'm seeing it firsthand as well as, you know, second and third hand. Well, thank you for making time for today. Thank you for bringing your head and heart, as always, to conversations. Uh, this is incredibly enlightening. Uh, for those of you who have not, again, spent time with the Four Disciplines of Execution book or the Four Disciplines of Execution for Educators book, I, again, as a former educator, cannot recommend it enough. Um, again, Meg and I both geek out on the district side of it, but there are plenty of examples, and we spend quite a bit of time diving into school level and classroom examples. And so something that I think we can all learn from. Meg, thank you uh, for being you and thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks so much. And everyone, thanks for joining us. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential. 